I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are The, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of The Gibson Review. In every episode, we talk about the week in review. Every TV show and movie we've watched since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main review or topic of discussion. And then we finish up with film faves. Our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, often marching backwards through time. In this episode, we teased in the last episode we were going to uh, review Toy Story 4. However, a schedule conflict made this not possible for this episode. So instead, we're going to do a discussion about the year so far including our picks for the worst movie of the year so far and the best movies of the year so far. So that should be interesting. Then in film phase, we will be counting down our 12 favorite movies from 1985, doing our year-by-year countdown. But first, let's talk about the weekend review. Shanna, I did not really watch anything on my own, but you got an opportunity to watch a few things on Netflix, didn't you? I have had time. It's been quite extraordinary. I had this wonderful goal because mm-hmm. I've been booked off because of the car accident. I had this goal of how many netflix original series can i get through is it <laughs> yeah and how many did you I get i only through? got through three ah very <laughs> so. good well let's hear about them anything right. notable worthwhile so each one had something great and maybe something not and we'll see okay so i got to watch you mm-hmm. which i think you told me it used to be on lifetime and now netflix picked it up that is what i heard yes uh-huh. So this was a perfect illustration of how we are all guilty of stalking for, uh, of stalking someone. For example, looking at someone's Facebook page, that is a form of stalking. (laughs) Really? I mean, you know, we could have a a separate discussion about that. Yeah. But that is a form of stalking, especially if you put it in this show. In about the first three episodes, you get all these, you get exposed to all these different ways people stalk each other. You know, or looking on someone's computer or someone's phone. Everything so, else after at what that point do you is cross a, the line. Well, after that, it's a downhill slope, mm. and I I don't have personal experience with that, so I can't comment. Aren't you lucky? So this is also a great show about showing how to control people, like how people control each other mm. up to certain points. Obviously, our villain in the story takes things to the extreme, as we can see in the trailer to the story. And no spoiler there. Uh, yet we have moments of, oh my gosh, please make it through. Like we're rooting for the villain. And sometimes it's like, oh, please stop. And oh, oh my God, please don't do that. Or uh, mm. you're just evil through and through. Or maybe if he gets this one thing, he'll be okay. And he'll be cured of his craziness, <laughs> for so lack of a better term. These are different responses you had. This is I had a to... range of emotions. Mm-hmm. And part of me is like, am I okay mentally? <laughs> um, like, Is what I was experiencing normal? And then I realized it's not like... It's not that I'm like empathizing for a stalker. I'm not. I'm empathizing for a character in a story. So, who then, happens to be a stalker? Who happens to be a stalker? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
So, you know, then we have our damsel in distress who we are rooting for most of the time. But then other times we're like, really? (laughs) You Mm. know, really, you're going to do that? (laughs) So I recommend it for, you know, those reasons. If you like having like a roller coaster of emotions and feelings towards characters in a story, Mm -hmm. then, you know, then I think it's a really good villain. I think it's a good damsel, for lack of a better term. And this is like a limited series or? Apparently they've been renewed for season two and I don't know how I feel about that. So uh, we'll see. Curious. Yeah. Where, where it could possibly go from where it ends up. Oh, you know, if you watch it, then you will know what I'm talking about. You know, you can Mm. always look at a show and you can always like squeeze the life out of it for another season, Mm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. The next show I got to watch is the Netflix original Russian Doll. This I recommend if you need a lighter viewing. This is about a woman who is reliving her 32nd birthday over and over again, dying over and over again in hilarious and sometimes horrifying ways. This is not a who killed me mystery. That's what I thought it was. I thought it was a who killed me mystery. Really? Instead, it turns out to be something way more interesting and intelligent than that. The performances are wonderful. The characters are interesting. I love it. The less you know, the better. And there's only eight episodes. So you can blow through this in a day. And it's well worth the watch. You know, this is one of those shows that has a nice, neat bow at the end. Uh, that I feel like I agreed with the end. So if you're you're having Game of Thrones withdrawal symptoms or anger issues around the end of the show, Russian Doll might be a good cleanser for you. It stars Natasha Leon, Charlie Barnet, Greta Lee, Elizabeth Ashley, who I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. And a couple other people. Natasha Leon, she's from the American Pie movies. I haven't seen Oh she is? Much from her in a long time. Ew. Who is she in American Pie? Oh, God. I, she's one of the girls. <laughs> I can't remember like right. character names in that movie. Super. Thank you so you much know, for they that. They don't really have much distinct personalities. But is, is, the, is the mystery of the, movie, the show around how this is happening? Yes. It's more like a why. Okay. Even though they, they do add some scientific theories, which was very refreshing. I like it when they throw in a little bit of, you know, plausible <laughs> theories. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, you get a theory about time and and how time is affecting other things. And and that's really fun. Very cool. And so that's Russian Doll on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else you got to catch up on? I also got to watch... The Ted Bundy Files, is that what it's called? I think it's the like Ted Bundy tapes or missing tapes or something like that. Yeah, that was interesting, especially after these two shows. Mm-hmm. It was a totally different, you know, vibe. So I got all over the place with categories this, yeah. this past two weeks. Totally worth watching. You know, I didn't know this, but Ted Bundy committed crimes in Washington State. Uh, actually, he... Uh, murdered someone who goes to a local college in our area. Uh, and the Evergreen other, State College? Yeah. Okay. And then several other women, and then around the country. So he was caught in Florida, no spoilers, because uh, it's real life. And <laughs> it, it just kind of shows what kind of a criminal he was, like what kind of a person he was. And it was truly bizarre. And it it shows you what it was like 
I guess from the law side of side of things. You okay. know, police weren't you know police stations they weren't talking to each other ted bundy was totally taking advantage of jurisdiction lines because the cops weren't talking to each other Mm. and they wouldn't so it would be this sort of territory thing i like to say pissing contest that's my favorite right description and so it also talked about how well we you know they had helpful calls but everything was moving so fast and they couldn't keep up because of uh, the way they were taking in data. Whereas now you would take it all into a computer system and it would be available for everyone to see. So those are the levels that I found interesting. Let's see. So I think it's called, if I'm not mistaken here, Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes. Mm-hmm. And you know there is a narrative film about Ted Bundy that came out this year also called oh, Extremely extremely wild and what is it called oh scary and terrifying it, let me get that it. actually right. started playing automatically when i finished the series extremely wicked shockingly vi- evil and vile starring mm. zach efron as ted bundy it was 1 30 a.m so i opted not to watch that one okay but i probably will watch that well, you'll have to give us a follow-up and see and let us know what you think of that as well. Both are on Netflix. Very cool. Anything else? Okay, the last thing I got to watch was the epic, just about three hours of my life, Brazil, which is on a Criterion. It Excellent. stars Terry Terry Gilliam. Mm-hmm, Terry Gilliam. Yeah, Charles McEwen. McEwen. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say names today, guys. There's Robert <laughs> De Niro. There's Kim Greist. There's Jonathan Price, Catherine Hel- uh, Helmand. Mm-hmm. Who just passed away this year. Yeah, and Michael Palin. Which was a hell of a cast uh, yeah. back then. Yeah. What, what, <clears throat> for those who may not know, because Brazil isn't necessarily what you call a popular movie these days. Look, you just look a lot at, of cinephiles know it, but what, what is it about? It's really difficult to comprehend because uh-huh. you look at the cover and it's the most beautiful looking cover like you've ever seen. You know, mm-hmm. it's like so ethereal but bureaucratic at the same time and so i tried to put it in words so let's see (laughs) (laughs) it's one of those am i gonna like this movie after looking at the cover then the first three minutes unfold and i'm like oh yeah i'm gonna love this film because i realize it's it's an alternate world and then it got horrifying by about the fourth minute mark and until about the 12th minute mark that those few minutes were absolutely horrifying. I think it's fun to note that Christmas is featured in the movie. So at first I was like, oh, good, a Christmas film that we get to put in our pile for the end of the year. And then I was like, well, no, I am never watching this film again. You know, it's this alternate world in which people are controlled through fear and paperwork. It's mm-hmm. a government that does no wrong and has no consequence or anyone to check in on them. So the government is running the world and what they say goes and there's no fighting it. It's got bizarre yet beautiful cinematography. It's kind of like I was trying to think of how to compare it to Blade Runner. Really? You know when you look at Blade Runner's set design? You've got all this neon. You've got all this interesting mm-hmm. fashion. You can tell it's this completely different world. Huge advertising. It's very words. pretty uh-huh. yep. in a way. Okay. It's like they took all the elements that make up Blade Runner's set design and made it sterile. 
So it's it's very strange. But then what happens is you're kind of jumping between this their their real world and the main character's dream world where okay. everything is very ethereal and at times scary and it's almost like a beautiful short but it's broken up mm. so we don't get the full picture it kind of parallels what's going on in his real world gotcha. really what this is <laughs> is a man trying to right a wrong that the government caused yeah. by controlling paperwork driven it says on IMDb that it's about a bureaucrat that tries to correct an administrative error and becomes enemy of the state. They use terrorism a lot, but it's not fully focused on, you know. So it's okay. kind of weird. You can tell that it took place before 9-11. Oh, way before. You know, because if it, if it was being created now, there would be we would be focusing more on other terrorists within this film. Essentially, how they define a terrorist in this film is, oh, if you go against the government. Okay, yeah. And it could be anything. It could right. be that you didn't file a paper. It, it could be that you tried to blow something up. Because in between this film, uh, between everything happening in this film, as if you need more, there's explosions happening. People are trying to kill high officials, and it's just so there's a it's rebellion. Very, but it's very chaotic. Uh-huh. Nothing is very clear. Okay, this was three hours of my life. Almost, yeah, <laughs> almost. And although it looks beautiful, and I do believe that people who are interested in film, everybody should watch this film. Uh, I would. I don't think I would go back to it unless I was going back for some, you know, visual inspiration because there are some beautiful shots. Mm-hmm. So, so you uh, you didn't enjoy it. It wasn't an enjoyable film. I uh-huh. needed a cleanser afterwards. Now, to be clear, you watched on the Criteria edition the director's cut, which is like two hours forty minutes. The original theatrical cut is two hours twelve minutes long. So had I known yeah. there were two versions, yeah. I like to go for the director's cut. Yeah. But I was experiencing so much pain because <laughs> I had a hard time keeping track of everything going on. Gotcha. You're you not know, talking about physical pain. I can, no. I can compare it to V for Vendetta. Okay. It's the same sort of principle happening. Sure. But one is more, you know, Brazil is more bizarre and less focused. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's one of those movies that's considered one of the greatest films of the 80s pretty widely. Certainly oh. one of the best films of 1985. But I I thought it was one of those movies that you should definitely check out when considering the year 1985. Yeah, and look, I've always wanted to watch it because I've always okay. seen that cover. Okay. And I've been like, what is this about? Because yeah. it does draw you in. Yeah. And at times it angers you and at times it... It draws you in again. Yeah. Uh, it's also good to note that this is this is British. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah it's Terry British, Gilliam. Yeah. British humor happening. He it. You know, you can tell it's British bureaucracy, not American bureaucracy. So right. Very interesting in that right. way. But well, if we anybody's are. familiar, Terry Gilliam, he's uh, from Monty Python, and he's gone on to direct many of his own films. Uh, and the 80s, Tim Bandits in, in Brazil were his two most notable, I believe. For me, I was going to say it's a movie I can appreciate, but it never connected with me. I thought it was a movie you should check out, but I I definitely knew it wasn't one of my favorites of that year. So it's interesting that you had a similar reaction. Of course, yours was probably a little more difficult because you saw a longer cut. So 
And maybe pacing was affected by that longer cut. I don't know. I'm not sure if I've seen that cut or not. Mm. But at any rate, uh, we well, should probably move on. That's But that's uh, Brazil mm-hmm. by Terry Gilliam from 1985. We Did we watch anything together? We watched one thing together that I can recall. Yeah? Yes, it's just one. Okay, so that was catching up on movies of this year. We had one movie that we could catch up with called The Upside. This stars Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston and Nicole Kidman. It is a remake of the French film I talked about a handful of episodes ago uh, called The Intouchables, based on a real story. This stars Brian Cranston as someone who is paralyzed. He needs a an aide, so to speak, an empl- a regular employee, a live-in employee, who could be there for him, who can help transport him, and take care of his basic human needs, right? Because he's not able to take care of himself, yeah? Kevin Hart is that individual who is hired. He's just a guy who's looking for a job, looking for basically, like, fulfill requirements in unemployment. And he stumbles across this job and surprisingly gets hired. I'm curious. I've seen The Untouchables. You have not seen The Untouchables. What was the upside like for you? I actually really enjoyed this film. I didn't know if I was going to like it. Mm-hmm. And I found it really funny and I found it really humane at times. And at times I was uncomfortable and at times I was angry. So it was a really interesting... You're angry with the film? No, like it caused caused me to get angry for anyone who is paralyzed and has to deal with certain things. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Did you? So you liked the film? I liked it. I thought it was a well-made film, and I thought it was focused. <laughs> so it's a weird thing. Very often when foreign films are being announced as being remade in Hollywood, there is this feeling of like this, this, this need to protect that foreign film. Like, oh, no. Like, don't ruin that form. Like, why do you have to remake that thing? Well, because often it feels like Hollywood's just going to butcher it. And sometimes it does, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. it makes a lesser version of something. You know, there's something very special about that particular foreign film. In Touchables, when we did our foreign film episode about three episodes back or so, the Untouchables, I don't believe, was mentioned. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's, It's a fine film, but it's not a great film you know it's 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 okay so it's not necessarily a film like i feel like you need to really feel protective of it's more this real story that you would that is worth protecting and being protective of and so i would say like the upside is probably a lesser version of that story Mm. in the sense that Everybody's really doing good work and trying really hard in this, but it does rely a little too much here and there on lowbrow humor. Like, there's a couple well, of times... Well, it's Americanized, so... <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like it's turned into, like, an Adam Sandler movie or anything. Mm. But, like, there is a scene or two where we're really laying on the catheter joke to the point of homophobia you know it's one of those things where it's like less is more you know yeah less is more and you're starting to really push things here i wouldn't say that characterizes you could have stopped at 
there. Yeah. But you barreled through. Right. I wouldn't say it characterizes the whole movie. Just little moments here and there are like that. Mm -hmm. And then they make some, like, very distinct changes to these people's lives and the characters, like... Like, uh, Kevin Hart's character, like, he has a more complicated family life than what's depicted in The Upside. And Barring Cranston's character has a daughter who gives the the help a hard time. Well, that, that character is completely omitted in The Upside in favor of Kevin Hart having a son uh, that he's trying to provide for. There is a love interest that's... They definitely changed some characters, I will say, without spoiling. So it does make it, like... Do you feel like they okay. changed the characters? And because they changed those characters, it actually veers on stereotypical storytelling? Let's just say they smoothed the rougher edges a little bit, you mm. know? It still has some of the humor, so to speak, that Intouchables had, you know? And the first 20 minutes are like 90% exactly like the first 20 minutes of The Untouchables, you know. So um, I, I can't say that I hate, I came away like turning my nose up at and hating the upside. I would just say it's okay and a lot of people will probably, it's probably good enough for a lot of people. You know, like you said, it's enjoyable, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a solid 6 out of 10 kind of movie for me, you know? I would agree. I, and I think you have a great point. Whenever Hollywood uh, remakes a foreign film, it's almost like it loses some of its authenticity because the foreign part is what makes it so magical. Well, yeah, it could be partially because of cultural reasons. It could be other aspects that are not necessarily universal. So that is the upside, and I think that is the end of our week in review. Let's move on to the main event, which is the year so far. Okay, let me tell you guys, Jeff changed his mind about this topic like three times. So here we are now. Yeah, so this is what happens sometimes when we have a scheduling conflict. We've had this happen like two or three times in the past couple of years, and we have to suddenly come up with something else. And sometimes there's not necessarily a plan B movie release that we're interested in seeing. In this case, Men in Black International and Shaft. Neither of us really thought those would be very interesting reviews. Uh, let alone viewing experiences. And uh, so we juggled a few different topics. It took a little while for me to realize, oh, I could just juggle around the schedule that I already existed and move forward this this uh, this episode. We're hoping to be able to talk a little bit about Toy Story 4 in a future episode, but uh, it may not be an in-depth spoiler-filled uh, review, but hopefully we'll be able to touch on that topic for you so we can at least give that for you. But at least in this case, right now, we landed on the year so far. We're in the sixth month of the year, halfway through the month. By the time you have, you're able to hear this compared to uh, the time of recording, we'll be near the end of the month. So... First of all, before I dive into a discussion of the year so far, I want to note there's a, thankfully only a couple movies, Shanna, that we haven't caught up with. 
last year i listened to our episode last year and there was like 10 movies we hadn't yet kind of come up uh, caught up with before that episode this wow, time it's like what happened last year <laughs> yeah yeah but we still That's were funny. able to have a very lively discussion uh this year it's really just like pet cemetery and late night the the film with emma thompson and mindy kaling rocket man and of course by the time you're able to hear this toy story 4 will be out those are really the only notable movies that we have not yet been able to catch up with and maybe they would be part of this discussion had we been able to uh, i don't know it remains to be seen and we will definitely talk about those when we do catch up with them so let's look at 2019 so far shall we let's start with the real basic stuff box office so the top five films, highest earning films of the year, the number one won't be any surprise, but let's let's work our way there. Number five at 160.7 million, just shy of 0.8 million, is How to Train Your Dragon: The Hidden World. Number four is 175 million dollars, uh, is Jordan Peele's film Us. Woo! Number three at $264 million is Disney's Aladdin remake. Number two at $426.6 million is Captain Marvel. And number one at $830.7 million is Avengers Endgame. So looking at that just alone, I mean, three out of five of the most successful films of the year are owned by Disney. So Disney's on its way to heaven. Yeah. And honestly, like Dumbo's number nine. They could buy a couple more rights to a couple more things. Or, you know. And freshen up their, their movies. Yeah, they could freshen up their movies. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other topic. Looking over the films that you have seen this year so far, Shanna, and maybe anything else that you've noted uh, that has come out, is there anything that you have observed about 2019 so far? I think it's definitely a commercial year. You okay. know, where, yes, you know, it's it's been in the making for 10 years, 11 years is the Avengers stuff, anything related to that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it is, well, how much money can we make? And I feel like that's definitely a priority there. I've noticed that it doesn't matter whether a live-action version of a a classic Disney film like Aladdin, it doesn't matter if we need it or not. It doesn't Mm. matter if it gets more modernized Mm. or not. Uh, they're still going to do it. You know, I, I don't think that I'm part of the population where, oh, I'm so excited to see The Lion King. You have to understand, I'm a South African. I grew up with these animals 40 minutes away from me. I could go to a park and view them mm-hmm. and be with them and photograph them for quite some time. And watching The Lion King movie when I was a kid was amazing mm-hmm. because it was bright, it was colorful, it was disney you Mm -hmm. know, and it was at a right level. And there were certain things that the animals would do that, you know, if if you watch the animals, uh, if you observe them, you could you could see the connection. I don't know what this live action Lion King is going to look 
is going to be like. But from the trailers, I'm like, I feel myself fighting against myself. Like, Mm. I don't want to watch it because I can guarantee you there probably isn't anything that's been modernized about this story. And even though there are classic stories, you can still bring in new elements. What do you mean by modernized? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a... So I guess catch it... Hold on, let me me clarify. Oh, I'm sorry. We're talking about a story that's set in the African Sahara, right? That's all animals. Savannah. Savannah, that's what I meant. Sorry. That's all all animals, right? So, like, in what ways do you mean modernize this story? Look, sure, it's animals are the characters, Uh but really we're commenting on human behavior as well here okay you know it it really is a human story too otherwise we would be watching simba attacking and eating gazelles okay okay fair enough yeah it is it is hamlet adapted yes so what i mean by modernize is what's happening right now in our world and how can you weave that into the story okay so make how it relevant. Have, how have we evolved? Uh-huh. Don't just tell us the same story. It's just, it feels like a waste of resources to me. If I, you're not going to bring something current into it. If I may, I think what you're scratching at is the question of what makes the story of Lion King relevant today? Oh, that's much better. You know what? Why don't we just edit out everything I just said, <laughs> and we'll just go with what you said because that was a much more efficient way to say it. Okay, yes. so that is fair to say. So that's what I'm upset about. Okay. Is, okay. So you're gonna make Aladdin again? Great. How is it relevant today? Mm. Have you made it relevant today? Uh. Is there any part of the story that you've altered? If you look at the history of that movie, yeah. it was supposed to be set in Agrabah. Agrabah's made up. Yeah, well, that's where it's set, right? But it was supposed to be set in a more realistic city. Mm. And something happened, and they didn't want to upset anyone. I'm sorry that I don't have any reference points right now. But something happened with the U.S. government and one of the Middle Eastern countries that the story was supposed to be set in. You're talking about the original story when they first made the original? When they first made it. Okay. And, like... They didn't want to upset the apple cart, and so they made up a city. Uh. So I'm saying, like, how are you going to make it relevant? Okay. Because, again, to me, it's like, okay, then you're just you're just wasting resources. Wait until it can be relevant, you know? Okay. So that's what I've noticed, uh, and I have to make peace with the fact that it's just going to, it's this train that's going to keep going. Um, I've also noticed that there's a lot of horror this year. You know, there's some horror that's come out already. And there's still more to come. And I think that that's interesting. Uh, especially... Do you, think, do you think horror is having like a revival this year? I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it's good horror, I can only comment to one of them. You know, Us is, is very... Here we go. So we've got this crappy, irrelevant shit. Like what? Like Aladdin and... Oh, okay. And Lion King. Look, okay. I, I thought you were talking about own the to horror. To be honest, like... I haven't seen them, but that's how I feel about this whole live action creation thing. yeah yeah and then you have us that's highly relevant uh-huh. and is actually you know i imagine and hope that it'll get a criterion treatment because it's speaking to so many things and it's a fantastic piece of work you know so in between the rubble we have the jewel <laughs> here mm-hmm. and there and in terms of horror specifically that you're talking about, you're you're saying that us is kind of the jewel in 
in the pile too? I think so. And maybe, you know, one one last thing on this topic that I'll say is look, you've got you've got the it revival, which is much later, doesn't count for oh. what are looking at, what we're looking at so far, right? But what I will say is that there's an example of making it not necessarily relevant, but improving so highly upon it. That it's worth remaking. Hopefully. Hopefully. We'll, time will tell with that particular mm. film. But, I mean, like, to the point you're trying to make, you know, talking about examples we actually can draw from from the year so far, uh, we have, it looks like, of course, the Pet Cemetery remake. We have The Curse of La Lorna, which is La Lorona, sorry, which is apparently a part of the whole, the I want to say the churning. That's not right. Like, um, what does that mean? I don't know the <laughs> the horror horror series about the ghost the ghost hunters real life ghost hunters and has oh. the nun and all that you know uh, conjuring the conjuring series oh, the conjuring go. series sorry right. took me a bit to remember that I can't help you with this right uh, <laughs> you know we have that the curse of la 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 we have la 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 right do we have anything else that's come out horror wise yet happy death day to you the prodigy uh, that seems like it's mostly it so far this year that's mm-hmm. come out. Horror-wise, there's, as you said, much more looking forward. But I would agree, Us is, you know, there, there isn't much to draw from from horror. There's also Ma, which was yeah. uh, apparently uh, a little bit of a horror, too. Well, there isn't a whole lot to draw from so far this year. As far as horror goes, Toy Story 4 does release the same weekend as Child, the Child's Play remake. Here's what I've noticed. This is, this is the one thing I've noticed about this year that I will say as an observation. Everything that is old is new again. Whether or not it's, it's, a, it's a, a fresh creative decision, you know? Mm. Whether or not it's creatively interesting to do so... Everything that is old is new again. You have, as far back as January, you have Glass, which is the third film Mm. in the Unbreakable series, right? And I guess What Men Want. Yeah, What Men Want, which is the remake of What What Women Women Want Want from the year 2000. You have also of course sequels that are carried through. Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase. Uh, Of course, bringing back the old Nancy Drew character. It's been around for years. You have Disney with its remakes of its old movies. Dumbo. uh, Aladdin. You know. And, uh, of course, later on, Lion King. But but just this past six months, you've had those two movies alone. You got a, a Hellboy reboot that's occurred. You've got... Well, could you count Little in that? Little, which, you know, is kind of a spin on Big. You know, you you could make an argument. You got a remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which, by the way, no one's mentioned, is itself a remake of a French film in the form of The Hustle with Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. You have what else do you have? There are so many things. It's hard to keep track of all of them. You've got Pokemon. Detective yeah, Pikachu. I guess. I guess. Although that's a good example of it really kind of taking something and turning it in a different angle. But really, more like another on point example would be like uh, Men in Black International trying mm. to revive this 22 year old franchise Shaft. 
We have another Shaft movie that's literally just called Shaft. This is the third film that's literally just called Shaft. You know, you have Dark Phoenix, which is reviving an old uh, X-Men story that was attempted 13 years ago as well. So uh, there's just so much this year that's about bringing back what's old and trying to make and trying to make money off of it you know of all these examples that i gave i would probably i would easily be able to only count on one hand how many are actually successful you can even say the kid who would be keen from january is also bringing back an old old uh, english legend right and, and, and that's right that is a good example of it being modernized that's true that's true you know but is this constant thing this year of trying to make a buck as as you intimated Mm -hmm. rather than trying to provide anything creatively exciting and new like of of those things i would honestly say maybe like nancy drew i haven't seen pet cemetery i've heard decent things about pet cemetery but Nancy Drew and, I don't know, maybe one other thing is actually worthwhile out of all of that. We'll get into more detail about some of these in a little bit here as we talk about the worst and best of the year so far. But this is the one defining aspect for me of the year. Did you notice anything else uh, anything else about the the films this year i'm noticing that you know film studios i am really loving annapurna okay and what they're coming out with they came out with book smart missing link yeah i haven't which seen was met very lukewarmly i'm um, trying to see if they have anything else but i mean really i'm enjoying them and look, I enjoy Netflix very much. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm also noticing that I'm becoming more select with my movie going experience. Like if if I have at all a feeling that that is going to be crap, I don't go watch it anymore. Right. Whereas before I would be like, look, there was so little coming out when I was a kid that we would go to the movies every Friday no matter what came out. You know, so I'm finding that my movie experience is changing due to the overrun of crap that we're being given. Yeah, it all basically comes down to the first half of the year just not being that great. Not There's not that many films that I would count as really great or really good. And, you know... I have the mindset right now doing the best of the 2010 series of what's what's going to end up being best of the decade. And there's very few, I think, that this year has uh, provided that would be considered and and will be beloved or appreciated or affect film in any significant way down the down the line. You know, uh, of course, we still have a whole other six months to go, and a lot of times studios really kind of put all their good stuff in the other other half of the year. So we'll see what happens during yeah. the summer and fall. Maybe we're just we're just being really harsh on the year because it's the first half of the year. Yeah, I mean, again, like there's I, a lot of mediocrity that we've we've yeah. seen. You I know? feel like the ratio right now is like one to six, mm-hmm. like six crap, one jewel you know 
Well, with that in mind, let's transition into a discussion about the worst and the best of the year. What we do every year is we come up with our own respective picks of what the worst of the year is from what we have seen, of course, right? And so far, we we can't put down what we haven't seen as crap. Well, it'd be pretty, <laughs> Just right, pretty unfair. But, you know, people are more than welcome to go check out Rotten Tomatoes and get a pretty fair idea, I'm, I'm sure, of what that would be. But we have seen, between the two of us, around 19, just shy of 20 films this year, give or take one or two. And so with that in mind, Shanna, why don't you get us started by talking about your pick of the worst film of the year? So... You know, this was actually rather difficult to come up with because, as I said, I'm not going to the theater if I have an inkling that it's going to upset me, you know? (laughs) Or be a waste of your time. (laughs) Or be a waste of the precious time that I have because I work so hard, my time is very precious. So I feel like the worst of the year for me so far is a toss-up between Isn't It Romantic and Dark Phoenix. And that upsets me horribly because I I love X-Men. I'm actually more of an X-Men girl than Avengers and mm-hmm. DC and all of that. I, I would much rather see X-Men than anyone else. That might actually kind of be a determination of what actually, between the two of them, is your pick for the worst. If you're to have to re-watch one of them, which one... Would you rewatch or actually think you'd enjoy rewatching? I would probably watch Dark Phoenix over Isn't It Romantic. Oh, okay. I'm just mourning the loss of Dark Phoenix Understood. right now. Understood, yeah. So Isn't It Romantic? I mean, I, I love Rebel Wilson. I will watch whatever she's in. I rented the movie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I love her. I'll always watch her stuff. But I just felt like this just... You know, it didn't feel new, even though it wanted to be new. And mm. there were certain elements that were different. At the moment, it's it's those it's those two that I'm kind of upset about. How about you? So we're on the same page, interestingly enough, when it comes to Incident Romantic. Although we talked about Incident Romantic in the last episode, the episode before that, and it came down to you actually liking it more than me. Look, I think because I'm a Rebel Wilson cheerleader, go and see her stuff. Like, the best part of that film is her. Okay. I think. Okay. I'm not sure that I could disagree with that. But as as I said before, like, this is my pick for the worst film of the year. Isn't it romantic? It just barely got edged out by glass. Or it barely edged out glass for me. Only because Glass had a really solid half of a film, right? And it just kind of slowly unraveled until it just had a very disappointing third act. Mm -hmm. Isn't it romantic just very consistently, I think, did not cohere for me, did not set up its rules and stick by them very Mm -hmm. well, Mm -hmm. and fell short often of its overall premise, which I thought was a really good premise. I, I I thought it was a really smart idea. It reminds me of films like Delirious with John Candy, you know, getting someone getting thunked by uh, thunked on the head and all of a sudden John existing, Candy gets thunked by on the head? Yeah. And oh, I'll watch that. All of a sudden existing <laughs> in a in a creative world, so to speak. You know, in this case it's rom coms the thing that Rebel Wilson's character hates 
In Delirious's case, it was the soap operas that his character writes. Oh, that's right. So it, it's it's reminiscent of that, and it's a brilliant idea to send up a genre that, by and large, was considered very stale for a long time, because and very un, unoriginal and un, 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 you know pretty much dead, very close to being dead, right? But it really did not live up to that premise. Years from now, if you want to remake a movie, remake this movie because it has actual promise in its premise, right? And I'm of the mind that if you're going to remake a movie, don't remake a great movie like Lion King. Hmm. Remake a movie that didn't quite work the first time around and try to improve upon it. This is a really good example of what, what should be tried again. Because it's a nice swing, but it is a miss for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's go through. We made a combined list of the best films of the year so far. Kind of a top five, so to speak. Since, uh, you know, it's only halfway through the year. And we're not doing a top ten. So let's go through that. Shanna, do you want to start us off with our f- number five pick of the fifth best movie of the year? Our number five is How to Train Your Dragon 3. This is the wrap-up of a trilogy. This is something that, you know, we could argue we've, like, grown with. I think it's taken, like, how many years has it taken? Like, 10? The 12? original was in 2010. Okay. So it's taken, like, nine years to wrap up. Mm-hmm. And this was... As always, it was a beautiful spectacle. It oh, it was such a satisfying end. Like we don't want the opposite of that. Let's just face <laughs> it. You know. You know, the the end is just so beautiful and don't worry, I'm not spoiling anything. I'm just stating my appreciation for it. Yeah. You're gonna end a trilogy, you're gonna need to end it on a high note. And so that film really achieved that and it's also you know speaking on a technical level it's fascinating to watch one two and then three because you see the progress that technology has made and how the creators have made progress between one and three and so it's it's i think it's unique in that way yeah regarding the cgi you're talking about which still in many ways the original does hold up i did name how to train your dragon the first the best animated film of the decade in the best best of the 2010s. And it's just piece. such a it's such a great story and the characters are real and they're kind and they're authentic. And for more information on our thoughts about that film, go back to episode 50 and you'll find some uh, more detailed discussion about that. Our number 4 pick for uh, best of the year is what was it was kind of a tough one because I feel like there's a couple films that could fill this slot. Same thing with number five, but it landed on Fighting with My Family. I think partially because it's a film that needs more attention, and I don't think it it got the attention that it really deserved. Uh, in point of fact. It grossed, how much did it gross? It grossed $22.9 million. And I don't think it lasted all that long, really. I'm not even sure that it made its budget back. Uh, so just shy of $23,000 million. It's a really wonderfully told story about a woman 
trying to compete in a traditionally masculine world, a masculine sport. She's not the only woman that's competing in this, by the way, but it does help destroy certain preconceptions that we might have about people. And and also, like her story isn't that pro- conventional in the sense that she competes with her brother and you think that, oh, well, it's going to come down to both of them. And no, actually, as revealed in the trailer, the brother doesn't even have a chance. Mm. And she's the one that moves on. Um, That's so, also a good story about being away from your family. Mm-hmm. After spending every second with them, what right. it's like to be pulled away. Right. And family expectations, too. Right. And really figuring out, is, is what you're doing what you want or what your family wants? And really trying to wrestle, and, and no pun intended, uh, with fun. that and figuring that out. So Fighting With My Family is our number four best of the year pick. Shannon, why don't you share with us what our third or pick for our third best film of the year is so Oh my far. gosh, our no, I love our number three. Well, I love our top five, but I love our number three. It is Booksmart, about two teenage girls that need to party it up with their last 24 hours of high school. school. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been pretty stodgy and very academically committed to their goals and getting into the universities that they want to get into. And they quickly realized that everybody that partied it up kind of cared about college too and got what they wanted as well and they were and they hit this realization of well maybe I could have had it all maybe I didn't have to just study and there's a lot of comedy that it's really funny it's really real really kind characters Mm. it's not your normal bully bashing nonsense Mm -hmm. you know it's not mean girls necessarily either you know, it's it's even. Well, it mean takes... girls is important because it it points out the meanness that does exist in high school. But this, but I think people kind out... of have that expectation in yeah, terms of character that's dynamics. True. That's true. And this takes it up a notch. Up yes, another, it's a we're operating on a higher level. It kind of shows the kindness and the subtleties of high school mm. because really that's actually what it is. Mm. There's a lot of subtleties happening mm-hmm. and. It's, it's just, it's so complicated, mm. you know, and they show it in a really unique, focused, clear way in this film. Yeah, and I will note that this is another movie that needs a lot more attention. I mean, it's number 41 for the year in terms of box office. It's earned only $19.7 million, even less than Fighting With My Family by three $3 million, less than A Dog's Journey, less than Ugly Dolls, you know, Less than The Hustle, which is considered a huge bomb so far this year. This is the kind of movie that should be making 50 to $100 million, you know? Yeah, you need to grab your friends and go watch this film because it's Mm -hmm. really good. And, you know, if you're not in high school anymore, if you've been out of high school for a long time or even a short time, I believe, you know, it, it opens up the dialogue with your friends that you go and watch it with. It also opens up in a dialogue like who did which character did you want to be in? Uh, what can you relate to that happened in high school? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great film. Book smart is that's our pick for the third best film of the year. The second best film of the year uh, according to us is us <laughs> that's lovely by jordan peele 
it is just an absolutely not just frightening but intelligent horror film it is working on something that you really need to chew on and and really think about after you walk out of the theater you know after the credits roll this movie stays with you as most great horror films should not just in the sense or necessarily in the sense of when you turn out the lights and go to bed you know you're frightened of something coming out or something lurking on the other side of the window but really more of like what is this film about what is it saying about us what is it saying about our country what is it saying about who we are there's so so much that it's working on that uh, truly great horror should be and it's very successful in that regard as well i think that it is a more complicated and in some ways interesting film than get out is maybe not as precise as get out is you know but a great great film and definitely one for the books shanna what is our pick for the best film of the year so far it just so happens to be the top grossing film avengers endgame and why is it the best film of the year oh it's interesting because it is the end of a 10-year, 11-year project, and it is executed very well, just like our number five, How to Train Your Dragon 3. It's executed very well, and so is this one. There, I don't know what else I could say about this film. <laughs> We've reviewed this film. Mm-hmm. It's the coming together of... I don't know. It, it's like the Star Wars. Like, if, if I was growing up, if I was... You know, therefore, when Star Wars originally came out, mm-hmm. that's this is my Star Wars. In the sense that it is a unique phenomenon that may never necessarily be repeated. I mean, I, you know what? How much did it gross? At what, $830 billion or million dollars or something? They might just go ahead and do it again. $830 Someone's going to try and do that. Because <laughs> in the long run, it's well, a look. pretty high... A pretty, you know, here's the thing. Like, this is this is one of those. This is the culmination of a project that has been attempted and reattempted by several and failed by most. Right? Like, I think the only one, though, I haven't seen the films, but I think the only one that may have become remotely close to being successful is the Conjuring universe. In that, uh, every single one has been financially successful and. It's apparently done well by in, in going deeper into all these different aspects of these different things, the doll, the nun, and all that sort of stuff, right? But obviously, it, it's, it, it pales in comparison to what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done. I will also point out DC is stumbling to be able to copy this model. Universal tried to do this model with its Universal monsters of classic monsters. And immediately, they didn't get very far. no, immediately failed. You know, mm. and and there's a handful of others, right? I mean, I suppose Fox, Fox didn't try the same model, 
They just kind of did what they've done in the past, specifically with X-Men. Trying to think about that. Yeah, I think they just at most kind of kept steady and mm-hmm. they just did some spinoffs. If anything, they followed the Star Trek formula of oh, rebooting in, yeah. in 2011 or trying to reboot the, the timeline, that sort of thing with Days of Future Past. But yeah, anyway, so what's has culminated with Avengers Endgame is something that can never be successfully repeated or is extremely unlikely. Now, the thing is, the film, this would be all for naught if this film wasn't a great film, right? This film has fantastic actors, Mm -hmm. great performances. Mm -hmm. The story, we didn't foresee what the story would be. It was and, very unpredictable in the way it went down, yeah. right? And, and then seeing it a second time, a third time, a fourth time makes you appreciate it even more. Yeah. And jaw-dropping set pieces and visuals. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the coming together of various various characters in such a harmonious, unique battle cry way. Yeah. So if you want more reason why you know, just we, in case what we've said doesn't really sit well with you. Right. If you want more of our thoughts on Avengers Endgame, check out episode 54 of The Movie Lovers, where we have like a two and a half hour episode, two hours of which is devoted to that movie. And sorry, we get not sorry. In depth. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so that is our pick for the best films of the year so far and the worst film of the year so far. What are your picks? Have you seen worst movies this year? Then isn't it romantic? Feel free to let us know about your unfortunate experiences <laughs> at the Gibson review at gmail.com. Let's move on to the next segment film faves. 1985. Now, Film Face, for those who are new to the podcast or are not familiar, it is inspired by a piece I used to do in the Gibson Review where I'd count down my favorite films from a particular year, going backwards through time. We stick with that, but we also occasionally talk about other topics. We also have the, the favorites of the decade series that we're doing in conjunction with the best of the 2010s articles. But uh, this episode, we're going to go back in time to 1985 and talk a little bit about our favorites. This was a challenging year. I think this and 1988 so far have been the most challenging years for us to cover overall, right? If least of all the, uh, the 80s. And uh, for me, it was a challenge because... I had a list of 12 favorite movies, but like a quarter of them were films I hadn't seen in a long time. I really wanted to refresh my memory, but they were not available anywhere. And I'm talking like Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. What else am I talking about? I'm talking about Enemy Mine was another one that I couldn't uh, get a copy of to watch, you know. So... You, Shanna, you also had a challenge with 1985. What was the challenge that you ran into? I watched Brazil and then I was burnt out. That was my challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to watch TV shows the the past two weeks, you know? I just wasn't into watching movies this week. So 
What makes and, you say that is the fact that it sounds like you must have had a lot of movies to try to catch up with. Yeah. And you know what? This was actually a more pleasant year than what year did I hate? 86? 88. Was it 88? Well, I yeah, it was a challenge. Was you um, you did have some disdain for eighty six yeah. as well. Yeah, interestingly enough, which I love eighty six comparatively. So, yeah, yeah, and that's that's totally fine. You know, there's less and less movies that I've seen, and so it is particularly challenging. Sometimes it feels like homework, and I'm beyond that. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> if I if if it doesn't interest me, if it doesn't grab me, mm-hmm. then I'm not going to go watch it. Right. So. But also, one challenge is there'd be movies that I would, like, throw at you that I would think, oh, this might have a chance of really catching on with you, and it not. Do you have an example of that? Do you remember? Well, Brazil's one, and all, but also Witness. Yes, yeah, you really thought that I would love Witness, and I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really kind of <laughs> ended up shrugging your shoulders at that one, and that did surprise me. Uh, quite a bit you know there's there's other ones there's some weird ones like i wanted to revisit the return to oz to see how well that movie held up if at all i did think that that was interesting i think you had a better experience with that than me and i'm the one that grew up on that movie you know okay well before we move into our favorite films of the year let's take a look at 1985 and see what the year was so shanna let's take a look at the highest grossing films of 1985 number five shanna was out of africa the best picture winner of the academy awards Mm -hmm. number four was the color purple by the way out of africa made 87 million the color purple made 94 million yeah rocky four was the third highest grossing film at 127.8 million dollars that's quite a leap from the color purple Mm mm-hmm Impressive that the color purple and out of Africa would actually make it into the top five in the first place, by the way. I don't think that would be the case today, as evidenced by movies like Booksmart and Fighting With My Family, which are admittedly funner films, but still. Rambo First Blood Part 2 was the second highest grossing movie of 1985, making $150.4 million. Shanna? Can you guess what the highest grossing movie of 1985 was? Oh, oh, was it Back to the Future? It was Back to the Future ah, at $210.6 million, just leaps and bounds above you know, the rest of the films. As I mentioned before, Out of Africa, starring Meryl Streep and Robert Redford, was the best picture winner a movie that i hear nobody talking about today directed by Sidney pollack by the way we checked it out i'm thinking well this is a roll of the dice uh no one talks about it it could have been one of those poor choices the the academy but also it's set in africa so maybe there's something in it that shanna might like right what was that experience trying to watch out of africa Okay, so I think we were watching it the weekend of my accident or the, the weekend after my accident. Yeah, definitely after. But, oh my God, it was painful. And yeah. I love Meryl Streep. Sure. And I just, I could not do it. You know, I'm aware of 
uh, South African history, African history, which typically means how the European countries came and conquered Mm -hmm. the African continent. And something about it just, you know, something about this year making a shift um, and teaching history right and learning history correctly, as opposed to what the, the schools have wanted you to learn for, you know, decades, centuries, just pissed me off. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. Mm. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so done. And uh, she was in Kenya. And not only was there sexism, which is period appropriate. Yeah. But there was also this, this, this racism that existed. Sure. And I was like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? I mean, that's appropriate too for okay. the period, right? I just, I just got pissed off because I was like, I can't do this anymore. Uh-huh. So I, I guess that's where I should leave it. I was just, yeah. I was done. We didn't finish the film. It's worth mm-hmm. noting. Yeah. We got 40 minutes into a two hour, 40 minute film. And, and I saved myself. Yeah. I would say it's not even Meryl Streep's best performance. I would say it's a very stodgy film. And the only way that explains like that film being picked as the best film of the year is an, is the older makeup of the Academy. You know, I, I could just imagine them longing for a David Lean-esque epic and you're being like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes, this that is, was right. You know. The African... Uh, shots uh-huh. pulling away, seeing yeah. the the savannah. I yeah. was like, "Are you serious?" Like the Lion King animated version is better than what you have here. So That's I was highly critical. And fairly harsh. Nothing against the Lion accurate, King, but because know? I don't think the I don't think the cinematography is the worst thing. But yeah, anyway. So I mean, the fact that the color purple, or even Back to the Future didn't win or even get in consideration films that are actually probably the best of 1985 uh, that it had to offer is uh, or even wrong by Akira Kurosawa you know yeah uh, is is a kind of a crime so anyway so that's what won best picture of the year what else can we say about that year the worst films of the year was Rambo, First Blood Part 2, according to the Golden Raspberries, which I find interesting. Rocky 4 is not considered one of the best of the year either. But Shanna, let's let's uh, do some association games here. Oh. Can you tell me what Sean Astin, Whoopi Goldberg, LL Cool J, Madonna, Dolph Lundgren, Alyssa Milano, Ethan Hawke, Kira Sedgwick, and Christian Slater all have in common? I can tell you it was probably their breakout year. It was their debut. I mean debut, yes. Yes. And some of them just so happened to be their breakthrough too. (laughs) Well, certainly in the case of Whoopi Goldberg, absolutely. It was their debut year in such films as Vision Quest from Madonna, A View to a Kill for Dolph Lundgren, The Color Purple for both actually Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. The Legend of Billie Jean, which we didn't get to catch up with for Christian Slater. That was with his sister, Helen Slater. Kira Sedgwick was in a film called War and Love. Even Keanu Reeves debuted that year in a film called One Step Away. And uh, Fruza Balk returned to Oz. Sean Astin's first film was The Goonies. Um, hell, Tim Burton's first film was Big, Big uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So it was kind of a great year for debuts, mm. as a matter of fact. Well, which is pretty cool. Pretty interesting, you know? How about this, Shanna? 
Can you tell me what Rooney Mara, Carrie Mulligan, Lana Del Rey, Anna Kendrick, and Kaylee Kowoko all have in common? Ah, uh, they must have been born. They were born in 1985, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. So before we dive into our 12 favorite movies of the year, I want to remind people that we do this in part to kind of share our tastes in film and also hopefully expose you to film you haven't seen before we also try to help you with that particular piece of the puzzle by pointing you in the direction of films or streaming platforms that these are available for particularly netflix amazon prime hulu and hbo now and a couple actually are available on at least one of those platforms the rest might be available on amazon to rent so go hunt them down shanna kick us off with our number 12 favorite film of 1985. Our number 12 is Desperately Seeking Susan. Available on Amazon Prime. Fantastic. This is a triple F rated film. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. It's starring Rosanna Arquette and Madonna. Arquette is, well, you know, a woman bored with her life, Mm -hmm. bored with her husband, possibly from as a result of feeling neglected. She shows an interest in the personals, you know, mm-hmm. where people advertise or are searching for someone. Like mm-hmm. one of the things they say, something along the lines of girl jogging with Alsatian puppy, uh, let's meet up. We mm-hmm. had a conversation. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. That, yep. that could, as a South African, I would not, be looking at that <laughs> <laughs> but that was anyway. a very common theme in the newspapers and eventually translated into craigslist i think craigslist eventually got rid of that section of mm. its listings but yes yes this is that's what this whole movie is based or depending on right and, and also shows no cell phone well of course so, you see pay phones right you see pay phones yeah, yeah. so a different time <laughs> yeah definitely anyway our kit suffers from an a whack on the head and has some amnesia and hilarity ensues when others think she is the one who she was interested in the personal ads. Yeah. There's certain people who are after Madonna's character, Susan, and there's a bit of mistaken identity there. Do you have any thoughts on the film? I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. It was just fun to watch. It was an enjoyable experience. So just barely made the list as such. Very cool. Our number 11 film is a film that, admittedly, I'm a bigger fan of than Shanna. It is a John Hughes comedy called Weird Science, which is basically about two horny teenagers who just who are just very smart kids who decide to create their own woman of their own dreams. And she ends up being much more than they expected um, and shows them how to lighten up, have a good time, and enjoy life beyond their studies, so to speak. Uh, Eagle Eyes will notice a very young Robert Downey Jr. as one of the bullies in this movie. Of course, Bill Paxton has a role that is beloved by many in this role as one of the older, bro- one of the kids' older brothers. He's quite the ass <laughs> in it. And there's even a, a little bit of a Mad Max sequence in it uh, when there's a party scene. It's really, really bizarre. But it's always stuck with me. It's one of those movies that's always been in the cable 
and always a lot of fun. Does it hold up necessarily in the 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 post Times Up era? Maybe not. It's a hundred percent. It's a no. It's a no. Okay, uh, I'll help you. It's enough. <laughs> Fair enough. However, it was it's one of those nostalgia picks that was fun, a big part of adolescence. So it made the list at number 11. Shanna, what's our number 10? Our number 10 is The Color Purple, Alice Walker's novel about a woman played by Whoopi Goldberg after being the victim of abuse of just about every kind from many men, father and husband included, she discovers and fights for her strength and power with the help and inspiration of three important women in her life. It also stars Danny Glover and Oprah Winfrey. Mm-hmm. I will warn you, seeing Danny Glover in this kind of role was very difficult for me. If you grew up with Lethal with Weapon. With Lethal Weapon, mm-hmm. you know. So I was like, no, Danny. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's true. So really fantastic performances uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. This should have gotten all of the awards. It really should have. I think there's some politics that got in the way of it being justly recognized. Of the ones that were nominated, it's it's probably very clearly the best film. So I'm glad that it was able to squeak onto our list. Our number nine pick is a film that I think is among the best of the year. I'm not sure if, Shanna, you've seen it, but... It did through compounding and, and structuring in terms of com- making a combined list. It did make it on the list. It is Ron by Akira Kurosawa, one of Akira Kurosawa's few color films. And if anybody's seen, well, first of all, if you're familiar with Kurosawa at all, you can imagine this is a guy who uses color as a tool, right? He uses it as a paintbrush, you know, and very purposefully. And so as such, the use of color is startling. It's very striking. If you've seen Kahamusha, it's more of the same in Ron. Uh, this is a film that is basically adapting William Shakespeare's King Lear into feudal Japan with extraordinary performances, extraordinary battle scenes, uh, just wonderful set pieces and great costume design, production design direction everything this is a masterpiece of the 80s i think kahimusha might be a little bit better than ron we'll talk more about kahimusha in a future episode but uh, this is a beautiful piece and worth noting if you have not seen it shanna what's our number eight pick our number eight is mask not the mask right <laughs> mask very important <laughs> distinction So this is a story of bravery, kindness, and the ability of choosing your family and holding the ones that you don't necessarily choose accountable. The stars Cher, Sam Elliott, and... Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz, thank you. Mm -hmm. As a teenager overcoming his skull deformity. You know what I like about this film? I feel like, you know when you watch Harry Potter? Mm -hmm. And it's at... this, This isn't a spoiler because you should have watched this by now. Dumbledore talks about, he gives, you know, points to the houses and blah, blah, blah. He says, it's it's difficult to stand up to your enemies, but it's even more difficult to stand up to your friends. And they he awards Neville Longbottom points for standing up to his friends. Okay. And I feel like in Mask, uh, Eric Stoltz's character is standing up to the most difficult person you can stand up to, and that's your mother, ah. who's loved and cared and stood by your side through everything. 
it just so happens that it's even more of a challenge due to the the skull deformity that he suffers from Mm. and everything that comes with it. Well, she has, I think what you're speaking to that he stands up to is the fact that she has some issues herself, right? That uh, aren't necessarily healthy or helpful. Yes, and and he calls her out on that. And he doesn't do it with hormonal charge. (laughs) He does it with sincerity and compassion. compassion. Mm Mm-hmm. And concern. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good movie. I think largely forgotten just outside the top 10 of the box office, I think, for the year. You know, people were really gravitating back then to more stories about people and dramas, you know, which is very interesting to see. So uh, very cool. Our next film. Number seven is Lost in America. Lost in America. Also got the Criterion it treatment. did. It did recently get a Criterion treatment. This is Albert Brooks, Brooks' comedy with Julie Haggerty about a couple who decide to leave it all behind and just go off on a, a drive across the country, right? They have a whole plan. They have a big plan that allows them to be able to do this and live for years. They are suffering from the same kind of boredom as the character in Desperately Seeking Susan. Similarly, mm-hmm. yes. However, they do something about it. They snap out of, you know, and also one of them's, like, in that case, she's married to kind of a dick, uh, self, self-absorbed self dick. Not the case in this movie. They're actually a pretty a good team. And they're a hilarious team. Yeah, they decide to snap out of their routine and their humdrum life. And go on, hit the road, buy an RV and hit the road with this huge nest egg of money from getting rid of all their bonds and real estate properties and everything. Just a huge chunk of money, which went far in 1985 terms, by the way. And trouble, trouble arises, hilarious trouble arises. And it's about what what happens then. This movie really stressed me out in the first few minutes. First few minutes, really? when they, you know, in, in the beginning I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is something that everyone can relate to, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then they decide what they're going to do. And they're like, and I think we should start. And they name the city that they're going to. And I'm oh, like, yeah. this is not good. Right. Nothing good is going to come from this. Right. And I'm stressing out. And I'm like basically sweating from the anxiety that i'm having because i'm like i know how this is going to go down i haven't been to the city but i know how this is going to go down and so it it's really fun the entire movie from start to finish and without going into any detail about it i think the nest egg rant is one of the uh, highlights of the film yes i want that on a shirt (laughs) the nest egg honey the nest egg uh anyway so that's lost in america our seventh favorite film of 1985 number six is teen wolf on amazon prime starring michael j fox one of two films he starred in in 1985 in this one he he, had a good year he more or less did yes Uh, in this one he stars as a teenager who plays in basketball and everything for high school and of course has a crush with a popular girl um, who is, of course, involved with kind of a jerk. He has a great group of friends. And is a jerk herself. And he turns out to uh, discover that he is a werewolf. He comes from a family of werewolves, as a matter of fact. 
This is a, a, a basically a 1980s spin on Michael Landon's I Was a Teenage Werewolf. It just uh, updates it for the 80s. It's pure 80s fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. I mean, you have, for crying out loud, a theater director who wants a werewolf to star in a Civil War play. <laughs> For crying, you know, it's like okay, all right, we're we're not we're not taking ourselves too seriously here. It is fun. It's not a great movie, and it did inspire an MTV drama series for a period of time, which I haven't seen, but seems absolutely nothing like this. Uh, it also had a sequel that is not worth checking out called Teen Wolf Two with Jason Bateman. We did see the trailer, and we were like, oh. Oh no. Yeah, it's one of those one of those things that they did in the eighties, which was rehash what happened before, you know, to try hey, it worked the first time, you know, that sort of thing. But this one is kind of charming. It's it's kind of silly. It, it's fun. It's fun. You know, when you're when you're getting up and surfing on a van through town, you're having a you're you're up for a certain degree of fun. And that's what Teen Wolf delivers on Amazon Prime. What is our number five favorite film, Shanna? Our number five is what I thought America was. It's The Goonies. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I thought childhood was like for absolutely every American when I was a kid. (laughs) Running across some thieves and getting in trouble and... And your parents let you go on your bike Uh, to these these activities. Right. So, (laughs) summer vacation equaled amazing adventure and fighting for the good of friends and family. A group of kids help save their parents from a real, I believe it's a real estate company, trying to overtake the neighborhood for their own desires i forgot about that Um, part that is actually how it starts that is actually what they're fighting you know because the the realist this this company is trying to push everyone out by raising uh something something to do with the mortgage and adult, adult stuff okay and there are antics there are adventures that are so bizarre to the actual purpose you know you even forgot that that happened yeah but iconic Child characters uh, of the 80s with mm-hmm. Sean Astin, Corey Feldman, Josh Brolin. This was, I think, one of his first movies as well, uh, who's now a huge star. He's Thanos, for crying out loud, right? So, Who is he in the Goonies? He's the teen with the red bandana rolled up. He's the the asshole brother? Uh, yes, I think so. That's really funny. Yeah. Martha Plimpton, who you love from Parenthood, is in this. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great team. Of uh, child characters. Uh, So, yeah, you know, the Goonies are enough. Well, what more can you say? So our next favorite film of 1985, our fourth favorite. I want to go watch that now. Is The Jewel of the Nile, the sequel to Romancing the Stone from 1984, I think. That was actually a quick turnaround. I don't know how they turned this movie out so quickly, considering all the different set pieces and and stuff like that. Uh, This stars, of course, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, and Danny DeVito. Basically, some not-so-nice Middle Eastern leader is after the jewel, the jewel of the Nile, for religious purposes, trying to win uh, the favor of his people. And Kathleen Turner is Joan Wilde of, of Wilder. And she is uh, enlisted by this dictator 
to essentially write his story, write his propaganda for him. And she's not necessarily too keen when she discovers he's not as nice as he is charismatic, <laughs> you know. And Michael Douglas is after her because he was believed dead when that said ruler tried blowing up his boat. And Danny DeVito, of course, tags along. Just a fun movie. I always like this one more than Romancing the Stone. Shanna, you know, you, you enjoyed this as well. It's just kind of a fun little adventure action film. There's scenes like it is Space Invaders, you know, with the jet. There's the scene with the tribe. The I think it's an African tribe, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to remember exactly what the locations were that this movie takes place in. Where he has to fight, you know, for um, uh, for Kathleen Turner, I believe. Because someone is, like, going to marry him. Do you know what I'm talking about? I actually do remember this. However, I am not certain of the culture you're speaking. Yeah, I don't remember so exactly it, it either. So it could be, you know, it could be something we could be completely wrong, actually. Yeah, they, they actually say in the movie. But anyway, there's a lot. it's a lot of fun. So it's our fourth favorite film. What's our third favorite film? Our third favorite film is The Breakfast Club. And, you know, this is a film that gets talked about all the time. This is the film that's included in box sets all the time. And it's about a few high school kids that get into detention on, I think, like a Saturday. Yep. It's a really odd time. I would be pissed as a parent. Well, not unusual, actually. I mean, (laughs) that that was especially back then. Okay. Yeah. I I guess that's how they got the parents' attention because I would be pissed. Well, the kids' attention, too, because they lost their Saturday. Yeah. Right? And so all these kids, I think there's like five or six of them. They're in detention and... Five, four or five. This is a good example of a, a good high school movie. Kind of like how oh. Booksmart is a good example Come of on, a high school movie. Come on, it's the best of John Hughes' films, absolutely. Well, you look at the movie post and you don't get much revealed. But what actually happens is all these kids are there and they all have certain opinions of each other. As it turns out, those opinions are not accurate. Mm-hmm. Yep. Each kid has a problem. Each kid has something that they're good at. That's right. It's another example of how we don't know everyone that we come into contact with. Well, and also, each person may seem different, but they're all the same, right? They all have shit that they're dealing with. They all have drama with their parents or expectations or issues with school. It's just, and at times, a moving film as much as it is funny and enjoyable too so the breakfast club you know i talk about book smart uh book smart is comes from a, a very long lineage that you could say starts with the breakfast club so shanna i know you're excited about our Ooh, second favorite our number film. two is clue clue the movie the original whodunit mystery well it's not the original whodunit well, mystery it's but... mine <laughs> you know <laughs> Based on the board game, of course. Based on the board game. Like, the best movie based on a board game. Which is like honestly not a long list uh, to draw from. Well, and we not could much talk about Battleship and other right. things. Yeah, we could, but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is the classic Who Did It. Um, everybody at the dinner table and mm-hmm. someone must have killed so-and-so. And it's it's really fun. It's a really unexpected comedic end. And to well, the because film. it had like multiple endings, right? It had not multiple, but alternate endings. Whenever it came out in theater, you didn't know 
how it was going to end, which ending you would get. Oh, that's really cool. And it wasn't until the video release that it showed all the endings. So here's what I appreciate about that film. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that they had enough respect for the board game Mm -hmm. that they gave you something like that in movie format. Now, that is a job well done. Also, one of Tim Curry's best performances oh, God, of his career just hilarious and i mean what he has to do the lines he has to remember while he's doing what he's doing uh, is just kind of some tour de four scenes really especially in the end great stuff tim curry stars along with um i think it's ellen burstein um madeline Kahn, michael mckean stars christopher lloyd it's a great cast of characters as well martin mole plays colonel mustard so yeah it's a lot of fun that film clue which is available on amazon prime so that brings us our to our favorite film of 1985 and how could it be anything else but red sonia no i'm joking oh my it's god back to the future robert zemeckis's great film Arguably the best film of 1985, the most influential film, the biggest film to make a splash on pop culture from 1985. Shanna, do you have any thoughts on Back to the Future? Time travel. That's my jam. (laughs) I love everybody in this film. I love how much they play around. I just... I love the concept of time travel, even though due to other films that have been released this year, uh, they have argued the theory out of existence. So One movie in particular. Yeah, so I, I, I love this film. I love Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. I love Christopher Lloyd mm-hmm. so much. I mean, there's certain facial expressions that Christopher Lloyd is capable of that... My brother and I would rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play, just to see him do that with his face over and over again. So, uh, and I think it's a great story, and uh, it's a fun concept, right? Like, right. what if you could meet your parents? Yeah, when they're when they were teenagers, yeah. because let's face it, we're completely different people when we're teenagers. Yeah, it, could, it might be a complete mindfuck too doing that. Thomas F. F. Wilson is great as Biff. Uh, he's, he's incomparable as Biff in this and film. And he is the best to watch in real life on stage. Sure. Talk yeah, about. He's lively. Yeah. He yeah. is so fascinating. Yeah. If, uh, if you don't know, he, he is a stand-up comic as well now. Uh, but Leah Thompson as as the mom, Lorraine, is very good. Uh, one of her best performances. Yeah, Crispin Glover is great as the dorky father. Uh, to Marty McFly, who's trying to be cool, who's trying to have a rock uh, rock band or, or a music career and everything. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Back to the Future, one of the most iconic films of the 80s, from, it is from 1985. How could it not be our favorite movie of 1985? I even love, by the way, just really quickly, the opening tracking shot. How it has oh. all these um, clocks and everything. It just establishes everything and so all the mess. well. And you have the radio going in the background and everything. Anyway, great film. It is, it is truly a great film still today. So uh, that is Back to the Future. And that is our favorite films 
of 1985. What are your favorite movies of 1985? What did we overlook? What uh, what what have you seen? Share with us at the Gibson Review at gmail.com. That'll do it for this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shannon, why don't you share with us where people can find you on the internet? You can find me at www.shannapaxton.com. Excellent. And you can find us on social media, uh, facebook.com slash the Gibson Review. Instagram slash the Gibson 99. I try to post movie related content on either of those, including links to these episodes and more. You can go directly to the GibsonReview.com to find all past episodes and past articles, the best 2010 series. We just did the best action films of the decade on there. You can look at that uh, that piece and previous pieces in this year-long series. You can also find these episodes on Spotify and SoundCloud, as well as, for the moment, iTunes, soon to be transferred over to, um, what is it, Apple Podcasts? Apparently, iTunes is no more or will be soon. So that'll be a change to look out for if you are an Apple user. Of course, you can always also donate to help defray the costs of running the website and the podcast and going to see movies and keep this thing going. Go to PayPal and just shoot some uh, money over to the Gibson Review at gmail.com. Next time on The Movie Lovers... Episode 59 will be our review of Spider-Man Far From Home. And we will be counting down our favorite sci-fi and fantasy films of the decade in conjunction with next month's article, Best of the 2010s, which will be counting down the best of that genre from this decade. So... That's going to be, talk about challenging lists, it's going to be tough trying to pare that list down. Hopefully a lot of fun, and hopefully Spider-Man's review will be a lot of fun as well. We'll see what happens with this closer, the official close of Phase 3 in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Expect that episode on July 9th. In the meantime, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.